Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s. Except sometimes we do Flashback Month, which is another <laughs> little adventure we're taking today when we review Cable Minus One. Uh, we'll get to that when uh, we get there, but this is Cable's first introduction to my show, which I'm very excited about because he was one of my childhood favorites. Uh, I am so beyond thrilled to welcome the podcaster, world builder, author, comic book writer, TED talker, scholar, Charlie Jane Anders to the show with us today, as well as my dear friends Justin and Alicia Wilder from the Ex-Wife podcast. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And today's intro question is, uh, has someone ever called you a sinner? And if so, tell us the story. Uh, let's begin with Charlie Jane. Welcome to Green Malkin Lane, Charlie Jane. Hi, I'm Charlie Jane Anders. Um, I'm probably best known to X-Men fans for writing some issues of New Mutants. And currently I have a mini series called New Mutants Lethal Legion coming out. Um, and it features a transgender hero that I helped to create named Escapade, but also there's, you know, Rain, Karma, you know, Mirage and a bunch of the other like New Mutants characters, tangling with Count Nefaria, who is just a delightful villain to, to play around with. And I'm having a lot of fun with that. I'm also the author of a young adult trilogy. Uh, the third book, Promises Stronger Than Darkness, just came out. And I co-host a podcast called Our Opinions Are Correct about the meaning of science fiction. And uh, has anybody ever called me a sinner? Yeah, I mean, many times. Uh, I, I grew up around a lot of religious people. But I'll, one thing that comes to mind in particular is Okay, going back to the dawn of time, uh, there was a website that was actually a really big deal in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and I apologize, this is the next thing I say is going to involve a slur. There's no way around it. There was a website called godhatesfags.com, which was run by the Westboro Baptist Church. And it was basically a huge website about how gay people, God hates gay people, gay people are going to go to hell, et cetera, et cetera. It was a really terrible, hurtful website. And so I decided uh, that I would create my own website called godhatesfigs.com, all about how much God hates these little fruits and how, and actually there's more evidence from the Bible that God hates figs than there is that God hates fags. Like there's Bible <laughs> passages where Jesus like curses a fig tree and there's like passages where they say, ah, figs are terrible. God hates, like there's literally God is really angry at figs a few times in the Bible. And um, so Basically, I created this website, and it was kind of this weird satirical version. It was like a funhouse mirror of the other website. And we we got we went really far with it. We created our own like tracts and our own like paraphernalia. People were taking God hates figs signs to protests. It was great, like counter protests against the God hates fags people. And I did get a bunch of emails, many of them supporting me, but also many of them screaming at me that I was going to burn in hell because you know life. Um, so that was probably the most interesting time that anybody's ever called me a sinner. Uh, oh God, do I have a lot of stories? <laughs> <laughs> I think we are of a similar age, Charlie Jane. We have a, we have different stories, but uh, a lot in common. Uh, let's go over to Justin and Alicia next. Oh, hey, I'm Alicia. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and you would know me from the ex-wife podcast. And um, <laughs> so I work as a living statue and um, like a performer at events and things like that. And there is a, a place in Boston called Faneuil Hall. And we would perform in that, like in the square essentially as a living statue. And for a while I was doing it like every weekend. And there was a person who would come 
and like protest us and stand in front of us and hold signs and say that we were like demons and all of these things because we were making a statue come to life. And it was very um, uncomfortable. So I was never like, yeah, I was never myself. I was a statue, but they would stand there and they would call us demons. And then they would have all of their other signs of all of this other religious things that they wanted to push on the people of Quincy Market. Um, (laughs) But I would just have to stand there and pretend they were not in existence. Um, so that's fun. That's my story. And then over to Justin. Hey, everyone. I'm Justin. I use he, him pronouns. And I'm the other half of the Ex-Wife podcast talking about current comics in the Krakoan era. I, I don't know that I've ever been called a sinner as a, a flat out statement like that. I I feel as though I've been called a lot of other things just for general uh tomfoolery and fuckery as we like to call it but um i don't know if, if sinner has ever been on the the list hey justin yeah you're a sinner ah <laughs> hey so there's one time i'm doing this podcast grim elk and lane and chad the host <laughs> he called me a sinner <laughs> called me a sinner just so i had a story to tell it was actually lovely uh, and lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, you guys know me from the hosting this show. I'm also a uh, an author, uh, a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, and a documentarian. Uh, I uh, grew up being called a sinner all the time. I grew up in organized religion. I was Mormon in my upbringing. There was a particular book that was written that was given to me when I was a kid that uh, outlined how uh, homosexuality was a crime against nature. And it like goes through like point by point all the ways you're evil if you're born this way and like you can totally cure it if you try and if you if you're not cured yet you haven't tried hard enough and that book ruined me for years it was a terrible thing uh but a big part of the past uh so as we're reading today's issue we'll get to it in a little while we're going to introduce Pable and uh Wolvesbane and Moira McTaggart to the show as well as Wolvesbane's awful but also hilarious father <laughs> Reverend Craig uh, Sinclair uh, who we'll talk about a little bit later. That's where this comes from. Uh, today's episode is called The Devil's Herald, which is uh, which is what uh, the Reverend calls Cable when he lands in the present. <laughs> uh, so before we start, uh, or excuse me, as we're beginning, uh, Charlie Jane, I would love for you to just share a little bit of your story. Uh, you are a phenomenal person. When you first got connected to the New Mutants book, I was uh, a little bit flummoxed. I'm familiar with your TED Talks. I'm familiar with some of your science fiction writing. And I know you just have such an extensive, impressive history. Uh, I'm sure in a post-COVID world, like all of us, you've had to reinvent yourself a little bit. But if you're willing to share a little bit of your journey uh, from kind of uh, fan into professional, (laughs) I would uh, would love to hear a little bit of where you come from. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've loved comics and especially Marvel comics for as long as I can remember. I definitely was a huge fan of the X-Men books, but also a lot of the other Marvel titles uh, when I was a student. And when I was like in my early 20s, I was just like hoovering up all the comics all the time. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've also been a uh, been writing science fiction and fantasy for quite a long time. And I've been writing kind of queer fiction for a long time. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to get a job back in the day blogging about science fiction and fantasy for a website called io9, which I think helped to put me on people's radar. And um, I didn't really write about comics as much for io9 because we had other people doing that, but I wrote a lot about TV and movies. And, you know, um, I wrote a couple of science fiction fantasy novels that uh, got a lot of attention 
in recent years. All the Birds of the Sky was, you know, won the Nebula Award and uh, the City in the Middle of the Night, I guess, won a Locust Award. And I've also published a, a young adult fantasy trilogy, which is sort of, it's space opera slash fantasy. And uh, like I said, the third book of that trilogy just came out like the other day, uh, Promises Stronger Than Darkness. And so, you know, I guess I've been doing a lot of uh, science fiction fantasy writing. And one thing that I've noticed is, you know, when I'm looking at who else is writing comics right now, and especially who's writing the X-Men comics, a lot of it is book people, like, you know, um, people who were writing prose books in the past have been really brought into the comics world now, and also into television, which I've also done some work in recently. I worked on a couple of TV shows a while back. Um, but, you know, one, one of the other X-Men writers right now is Victor Laval, who wrote the amazing novel Changeling that I think is being turned into a TV show now, and just wrote a new, new novel called Lone Women. And Victor is an incredible novelist, mm -hmm. and he's doing such great things with Sabretooth and Sabretooth and the Exiles. He's just like completely crushing it. And I feel like there's a few others who are like novelists, but who also have gotten, oh, uh, Alyssa Wong. Alyssa Wong, I knew them as a, as a fiction writer first and foremost, and now they're writing Deadpool and they're doing an incredible job. So I think that there's been like a move to like kind of recruit from among the, the, the dirty, you know, grubby ranks of the book scribblers to, to write comics in the last like several years. And like I said, also in TV, like I've been amazed at how many TV writers, how many TV shows have gotten book people to work on them. And um, so, you know, I've been having conversations with Marvel for years about doing some work for them. And in fact, the conversations about me creating a trans character for Marvel started, I don't know, uh, I want to say 2017, 2018 was when we started having those conversations. And we just kept talking back and forth about it. And there were different versions of that that we kind of kicked around. And, uh, you know, I did some short things for Marvel, kind of dipping my toe into it. I wrote a thing for the War of the Realms crossover. I wrote like a really short piece for that. I wrote a thing for Women of Marvel. And then I think that they just sort of, they saw that I was able to turn in comics pages that weren't, you know, I wasn't going to need as much hand-holding because I'd read a lot of comics and I kind of knew comics. And so they were like, okay, we're going to do it. And uh, so that's how I finally got to create Escapade with Ted Brandt and Rose Stein and how, you know, then that just sort of led to me writing New Mutants. It's, it's been a really fun ride so far. Uh, when you were growing up, who were your go-to characters? Man, I mean, I think the first... Marvel character that I, I mean, I, I loved Spider-Man when I was a little kid because Spider-Man was on, like there was the cartoon and there was the electric company. I'm kind of dating myself that had Spider-Man in it. And there was like the live action Spider-Man show um, that, you know, when I was little. And then, um, you know, I think the first comics character, like the first Marvel comics character that I really got into was the Hulk. Like I just, there's something about the Hulk that is just, so relatable to me, the fact that he's got all this anger he's bottling up, the fact that Bruce Banner really tries to be a decent person, and then when things just get out of control, he just turns into this rampaging beast. That feels very relatable to me. And like, you know, the the Peter David run on the Hulk really kind of, um, it just blew my mind. Like that original da Peter David run, like from whenever it was, like the mid 80s to like the mid 90s, it just, it was really, really special and felt like really something like a really just powerful story being told. The uh, New Mutants is one of my all-time favorite titles for a number of reasons from its earliest inceptions. I started collecting comics in the early 90s. I started working in a comic shop and picking up back issues. 
Uh, Wolvesbane and Cannonball were easily my favorites, although I relate to all of the characters very quickly. Uh, and then uh, in the modern Krakoan era, we've seen this kind of resurgence of new mutants, which is kind of occupying the space in the modern books of what it means to be a young person with powers in this society that is allowing people to kind of be free and figure out who they are. The books for so long have been people fighting for their lives and, and trying to find their space. And, and the New Mutants, of course, has always been about youth and uh, and trying to, to learn hard lessons. Uh, there's a cast of incredible characters. There has been a lovely and well-regarded run by Vita Ayala over the last several years. Uh, tell me about you coming aboard uh, New Mutants. I mean, it was really intimidating. I mean, this is a comic that has this incredible history that's uh, that's really beloved by many, including me, and that has just like such a rich cast of characters, but also such rich themes. Like you said, it's about coming of age. It's about figuring out your powers. It's about understanding who you are and who you want to be in the world. And all these themes that I really connect to that I had already been kind of thinking about in these young adult books I was writing. And it just felt like such a gift, but also such a huge responsibility. Like I felt like I really had to bring it. And especially I reread, I think I've read Vita's run now four times. And like every time I read Vita's run, I'm just like blown away all over again. It's just, they did such a phenomenal job with this title and they were just so, um, they were just so clever in how they brought in like new younger characters to to kind of keep that coming of age theme going but still find ways to like move the stories of the the legacy characters forward and you know they were just oh my god it's such an incredible run it's one of the best runs i've read in the last several years and like following that up felt like a huge responsibility and a huge challenge and I mean, I obviously, you don't want to just try to copy the person who came before you. You want to try and make it your own. And meanwhile, I really wanted to introduce Escapade to people, especially if they hadn't had a chance to read the Pride issue where she was introduced. Um, I, you know, I was told by my editor and by the folks at Marvel, you know, use this to to help people to know get to know Escapade. Like this, that's part of your job. Like that's that was those were my kind of instructions from from. The editorial staff and I was really grateful for that because I had a lot of story I wanted to tell with Escobar I still do there's like so much more that I want to do with her and uh you know and she's someone who definitely fits into all those themes of coming of age and kind of not really understanding how to use her powers and making really terrible mistakes like making really horrible decisions right and left and like really struggling with who she is and how she fits into this world this really complicated rich world and you know, um, I was so lucky that uh, Vita had left it in a place where Sarah Bella, Martha Johansson, mm -hmm. uh, the character formerly known as No Girl, had just finally gotten a new body and was finally kind of, you know, fully embodied again after years of being different versions of basically just like a brain in a jar or a brain in a globe or whatever. And um, that felt like the biggest gift because I got to write, like, I love writing about how people relate to their bodies and how we store trauma in our bodies and how having a body is this really complicated thing that uh, like both as a transgender person and just as a person in the world who has, you know, you know, weird aches and pains in my body does stuff that I'm like, why the heck did my body just do that? Bodies are weird. And like somebody who hasn't had a body in a long time, that feels like a huge gift to get to tell that story. And then, 
you know, the fact that in my in issues 31 through 33 of New Mutants, it was my editor, it was Sarah Brunstad, who was like, why don't you do hang, why don't you use John Sublime and the U-Men? We haven't had them in a while. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I didn't really remember about them. Like I'd read all of Grant Morrison's new X-Men comics back in the day, but that was like 20 years ago. So I, I didn't realize at first how big a deal that would be for Martha to be encountering John Sublime and the U-Men again after 20 after so long and with her finally being in her own body again. And so that was also a huge gift. But again, all these things, they're challenges in a different way because you want to do it justice. And that's what I've been trying to do. And with with Lethal Legion, I've just been able to cut loose and kind of tell just a really wacky, ridiculous story that hopefully has a lot of heart to it, but also just gets sillier and sillier as it goes along. It's delightful. Let's start with Escapade really quickly. She, okay, uh, sure. she makes me get Madonna songs stuck in my head every time she comes on the page. Uh, oh, well, looks, that's the high compliment. Dang. She looks a little like April O'Neil from the Ninja Turtles, who oh, I love. Man. And she has one of those power sets that fucks with my head. I have to slow down and go, wait, how does this work? And then it, and then it like it sings to me once I figure it out. Tell us who Escapade is. Yeah, so Escapade is Sheila Sexton. She's a young transgender mutant. I think she's like 18, 19, you know, ish. I, I don't think we've specified exactly what her age is. Uh, but she's a young transgender mutant. And um, she's kind of a con artist, kind of a thief. She's kind of a, a trickster. She's what I call a naive trickster because she loves pulling, tr pulling tricks on people, but she's also kind of easily fooled herself, which I think is like my favorite. Like I like it when someone is both sets out to fool others and is also easy to fool like that's just you know and is actually she's actually good at fooling others but she's also good at being fooled it's weird and um and her power is something that i've been thinking about for a very long time like it was something that i had kind of had in my back pocket from another project that ended up not happening and it's basically like she can change circumstances with anybody and like the purest form of that we see in the pride issue like she fights Skullbuster and she loses the fight and she's beaten pretty badly. She's like all banged up. Like she has broken bones and she's in real bad shape. And she just like reverses. She like kind of flips it around so that she's now the one who won the fight and she's in perfect shape and Skullbuster is all banged up and messed up. And so that's like the most kind of basic version of it. And she could also just switch locations with people, which is also a really basic version. But she could also, it, it can also be conceptual. Like as she explains in one of the New Mutants issues, if you won a hot dog eating contest, she can make it so she won the hot dog eating contest instead. She's able to become one of the U-men. She's able to like, if you got her close enough to Joe Biden, she'd be President Sheila Sexton for a few hours and he'd be just like some regular guy named Joe Biden. And like, people wouldn't think that she was Joe Biden. People would think that she was the president. And like, it is super weird. It's kind of a reality warping power. And I like so, that about it. So it's rather, it like, also, she changes, it's rather like she changes people's perceptions uh, as she's occupying this new space, but she takes on people's skill sets and their mm -hmm. circumstances. When it switches back, they get their memories back I mean, it's not it's not like they ever lose their memories. It's just that if she takes something really fundamental to you, like your identity, like if she took, if she got close enough to Joe Biden that she was the president for a few hours, Joe Biden would just be really confused. He'd be like, uh, what, "What's going on?" Like he would he wouldn't really understand because he would think she was the president, but he'd know in the back of his mind that he was supposed to be the president, and like he'd just be like. What am I even doing here in the White House? Who am I? What's going on? Like he would just be kind of confused for a few hours because of that weird disconnect, that weird kind of um, 
but the thing I want to say is because her power is so much about like it's so much about circumstances and it's so much about like the psychology of it. Like being president is a very kind of abstract concept. It's not like, you know, you won the fight. Now I won the fight. That's very, that's very logistical and physical. The thing of her taking somebody's job as president or, or mayor or whatever, like she became high school principal at one point when she sure. was younger. That's because that's so conceptual. It can easily go wrong. Like if she's not super careful and thinking really clearly about what she wants to do, it's going to go wrong. And this happens a lot. Like she says in the pride issue, if I would try to change places with the president, I might just end up wearing his shoes. Like I might just, he'd be wearing my little boots and I'd be wearing his shoes. I, it's, it often goes wrong. It often, the more high concept and complicated the switch, the harder it's going to be for her to pull off. And the it's more sort of like, a, it's, it's sort gonna, of like making a wish, but you got to use just the right words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. Exactly like that. And I have a thing that I wrote into the first, into the first issue of New Mutants Lethal Legion that or actually, no, it was into New Mutants number 31 that I ended up having to cut because it just didn't fit, but I'm going to use it at some point and I'll just spoil it anyway because nobody will remember by the time I use it. But I had this thing that was really fun where she and the New Mutants are trying to get into a facility and there's some guy who has like security clearance to get into the facility and they're like, escapade, take that guy's security clearance. And so she gets close enough to the guy and concentrates. And instead of getting his security clearance, she gets his insecurities. So she's suddenly really worried about whether this god whether this guy's dog likes him and whether his marriage is in trouble and like whether he has bad taste in music. All these all the all these little insecurities are suddenly her insecurities. And she's like, Oh my god, my dog doesn't love me and I don't even have a dog. And like she's just like, you know, and they're like, snap out of it, Sheila. That's not you. That's this other, you know. So I'm gonna use that at some point because I think that's really funny. But point is when she tries to do something really complicated, it's probably going to go wrong. It, it would be it would be boring if it went right most of the time. Well, it's so New Mutants too, right? They have this awesome power and they try to use it. They try to use it beyond what they maybe should at mm -hmm. that point, and it ends up getting them into trouble. And exactly. Like, you know, that's that. That's that coming of age. That's that. Um, I, I love Sheila's energy and just the fact that it's oh. always ready for uh, chaos and yes. and just taking down bad guys i feel like her and gabby together is like just a recipe for amazing disaster yeah yeah there's there's a lot of that in issue two in issue two of lethal legion i'm not going to give any spoilers but Can't wait. the two of them being fake supervillains that's gonna work out great for everybody <laughs> that in the end of issue one just made me think of classic new mutant themes and tropes mm. right you have kids doing things that they shouldn't do, putting on costumes they shouldn't be wearing and getting into situations <laughs> that they shouldn't otherwise be in. How are you balancing all of those classic themes with some of the deeper character stories that you're wanting to tell about like, like Sarah Bella, like really coming into her body and, and, and even Sheila kind of questioning her place? I mean, I feel like it all goes together and I feel like Part of what I part of what I've seen in the New Mutants issues I've read, like I've been, you know, I've been rereading in some cases, in other cases, reading for the first time, a whole ton of New Mutants issues since I took this on, and you know, part of what I see over and over again is that theme of like loss of innocence, of like, you know, learning hard lessons about the world, um, and like, you know, the kind of blundering into situations that you really should have not blundered into. Um, that goes hand in hand with trauma and it goes hand in hand with, 
you know, a certain amount of kind of underlying pain, which a lot of these characters have in which, you know, even like take Wolfsbane, even when we first meet her, she's young and innocent and cute and kind of like, you know, she's easily shocked by like everything and like, oh my God, we're going to a slumber party. Oh, that's the most shocking thing ever. Like, you know, she's very easily shocked and those are early issues of New Mutants, but she's also been through a lot even before we first meet her because of Reverend Craig, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. And, uh, you know, every one of these characters has been through a lot at this point. And, you know, what's really going on there in Lethal Legion and the miniseries I'm writing right now is that Sarah Bella, not just she's, she's, dealing with having a body for the first time in a long time, but she's also dealing with, she just had to confront the human again and it really messed her up because it brought back a lot of stuff for her. And this terrible situation that Sheila suggested they get into is Sheila's attempt to kind of get Cerebella's mind off it. And it's a part of why it's a terrible idea is because it's, it's Sheila's way of dealing with things. It's not Cerebella's way of dealing with things. And it's not actually a great, it's just Sheila being like, well, this is what works for me. So this is what we're going to do. And, you know, it's, 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 I feel like when I said that to my editor, my editor was like, yes, that is, that is new mutants in a nutshell. A character trying to help another character and actually either making things worse or at least just like making things a lot more complicated, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, that's the, it starts from the place of wanting to help and then it turns into like a trash fire. (laughs) that's actually like a perfect segue to my question um i'm really interested in what's going on with morgan and rain and their relationship building and the sort of like quest to get morgan interested in maybe coming to krakoa and now there's like you know we've got a turtle in the mix so you know can you speak a little bit about their relationship and their journey and like where that's coming from and maybe give us a little insight into where it might go yeah absolutely thank you oh my god i love putting those two together i mean god you know here's what happened i was writing new mutants 31 and 32 and i just started to notice that those two had a vibe like i was like oh morgan and rain whenever they're talking to each other it actually it's really because partly because of the thing where Morgan is so cynical about Krakoa and like Rain reacts to that. But also it's like this thing of like Wolfsbane still has this like huge, big open heart and is just like, you know, kind of a, kind of a sweet mother duck in some ways. And like, you know, she still has some of that innocence that she had when she was in those early issues of new mutants. And she still wants to believe that everything's going to be okay. And that, you know, mutants, if they work together, they can make things better. And Morgan is like really innocent, but also really cynical. Like he actually hasn't seen that much of the world, but is super cynical about stuff, which is how I was when I was a young person. I was like both hadn't seen anything, but also was really cynical. Like, and now I'm old and cynical, but you know, I feel like (laughs) in some ways when you're young and cynical, it's different because you're just like, you're, you you've you've seen enough to know that everything's garbage but you haven't seen enough necessarily to kind of see how things can be garbage and still be worth it kind of mm-hmm. if that makes sense i guess yeah, totally. and i don't know the two of them when they started working together when they were caught by the u-ben i was like oh you know they actually have a really fun vibe together and i think that they have this mutual respect that they kind of struck up and they they clearly enjoy each other and so then I just, you know, when it came time to write Lethal Legion, I was like, let's put them together in a weird situation and kind of just get them to have this conver- ongoing conversation about Krakoa, but also about trauma and about like, 
you know, why Rain is so anxious to believe in a better world for mutants and why Morgan is so resistant to it. But also just like their friendship. Like, I mean, I feel like Morgan started out just being Escapade's friend, being Sheila's friend. And like, you know, was in danger of becoming Sheila's sidekick. And it was just going to be like, you know, Sheila was going to have all these adventures and Morgan was going to either be sitting at home giving her advice on the, on the, over the little head wire headless, the wireless, not headless, wireless headset, um, <laughs> like he did in the pride issue or, you know, he would, or they were just going to be dragged along while Sheila went on adventures. And I was like, it's actually really interesting if Morgan and rain gets to be friends. And then, like I said, the more time they spend together, the more they seem to like to have like a, a vibe and, you know, then they encounter this giant monster in the sewers and like, they have to kind of figure out what to do about this giant monster that they're now kind of trapped with, but you know, it's, it gets kind of complicated, but I, I feel like, you know, they just, um, I just like the two of them together as like, as friends. And I feel like they actually form this really interesting friendship. I'm going to ask a really intense question really quickly, and this is going to be layered. So give me just a second. In one of your TED Talks, you open it, well, you don't open it, but you reference a quote by Frederick Pohl. A good science fiction story should be able to predict not the automobile, not just the automobile, but also the traffic jam, which is such an incredible way of thinking about world building. To have a trans person who is writing complex trans characters, and I'm a therapist in my day job, and one of the areas I specialize in is working with uh, so many beloved trans people that I uh, consider just my favorite people uh, ever. Two concepts that I've seen show up, and, and a lot of New Mutants I know is silly and fun and exploring, but you have two really incredible trans characters who have a very complicated friendship in Escapade and Morgan Red. And the way that they are navigating what it means to be making other friends and to be integrating from the private world they've had into this wider world of mutants where they're being accepted, it's such a beautiful and complex story. And to see a trans relationship uh, emphasized in that way in a Marvel comic book is just fucking beautiful. The other part of this question, and I know this is a big one, the U-Men are an old group of X-Men foes who are mutant haters that want to kill mutants but also take their body parts and graft it onto themselves and steal what made the people that they hate special and to use these characters uh when so much about trans issues is learning how to own your body and you have these people hunting you down for your body uh it just it's uh the the layers of that uh and the subtext in your storytelling it's just it's it's wonderful to see these uh in a comic book i don't know what my question is i just wanted to just toss all of that out there and hear your response because it's really powerful and it's really special I just can't tell you how much all of that meant to me. And also, thank you for doing the work you do as a therapist. That's amazing and really, really needed right now. And gosh, it's truly my honor. I don't know. Yeah, it's it, people. We need we need way, way more people like you doing that work. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is something that I took really seriously, and I thought about it a lot. And if you read the Pride issue, all of this lands a little bit differently because that's where I kind of get. I kind of had the space in the Pride issue to get more into these kind of topics. It was really important to me, first of all, that being trans is not a, a metaphor for being a mutant. And being a mutant, mutant is not a metaphor for being trans. These are two parts of like complex identities that Morgan and, and Sheila have. And, you know, at some point, I finally, I was like looking for the place to squeeze this in. Um, Morgan is also asexual, 
Morgan is also like Asian and Chinese. Like he has one Asian, one Chinese parent. Sorry, Jew Jewish and Chinese. He has one Jewish parent and one Chinese parent. Um, they have one Jewish parent and one Chinese parent. He they uses he they pronouns. Um, and you know they these people have. Like like many of us in real life, their identities are complicated. They have like a bunch of different things going on in their lives. And the thing in the Pride issue where Sheila comes out to her parents as a mutant and her parents are like, oh, we support you. We think that that's, you know, we understand. And, you know, th those genes came from us. So, of course, we support you. And, like, you know, we're here for you. And then they talk about Willa Cather a whole lot. And then later she comes out to her parents as trans and they're like, there's something deeply wrong with you. You've been corrupted by the internet. It's rapid onset gender dysphoria. You're sick. And she ends up having to leave home and like go move in with Morgan's family. That was something that was really important to me. And I was so grateful that Marvel gave me zero pushback on that. Um, like, cause I was kind of implying that there, you know, I was implying, I was stating that there are people out there who are completely like, you know, tolerant of or supportive of mutants who might be completely transphobic and vice versa, I'm sure. But like, you know, these are two very different prejudices. They're not the same thing. Um, Anti-mutant prejudice isn't the only prejudice we might have to deal with in the world. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the friendship between Morgan and Sheila is one in part of the two of them were, they were kids together. They both transitioned together. They both like dealt with a lot together. Like you see that in those in New Mutants 31 through 33, we have a little few little flashbacks about that, about how they help each other through some kind of not great times at school and how this is when they start talking about being supervillains because they're just like, they feel really like the world is against them in some way. And um, I feel like that is what brought them together. And I think that what keeps them together and what I, you know, what, hope they realize keeps them together is that they they really enjoy being troublemakers together and they really enjoy causing like you know pulling off heists but also just like being kind of obnoxious together and they have kind of a similar kind of weird nerdy sensibility they're i don't think that they're just brought together by trauma i think that their relationship is more complicated than that and i think that when it comes to the human like you look back at those issues that Grant Morrison wrote back in New X-Men and, you know, Grant Morrison obviously is non-binary and has, you know, has really embraced uh, their queerness. Uh, the human, like the human are, are using a parody of transgender uh, talking points of the early, of the late nineties, early two thousands. Like there's a character when we first meet the human who actually says, I was born in the wrong body. I should have been born a mutant. Um, and like, in a way it's kind of commenting on how, and this is something I've certainly encountered myself. You have these people who are transhumanist who believe that we can transcend our bodies so we can, you know, become post-human. We can become cyborgs or genetically modify ourselves so that we've, you know, we have like, really enhanced capabilities and those people often try to kind of in a way kind of i don't know, i want to say co-opt the language of transgenderism or transgender people in a way and it's it's really complicated I, I shouldn't say transgenderism because that word has become really toxic recently but because trans transness is not an ideology it's it's right. it's who we are i apologize for saying transgenderism but i feel like you know and i love i love to respect many transhumanist people, but I feel like there is that dark side of it where sometimes they try to kind of co-opt or uh, um, 
or kind of misapply some of the language of transgender people for their own ends. And it's a very different thing. And obviously, if you're going around doing what the human do and cutting people up and stealing their organs, that's that's dark and terrible and awful. But I think that it's interesting. Like I tried to build on that in my issues of new mutants where I'm like, you know, I actually have one of the humans say to Sheila and Morgan and the others, oh, well, you all look like you're gender queasy or, or whatever, like meaning gender queer, but they say gender queasy, which is me being a, a weirdo, but you all look like you're gender queer or gender queasy or whatever. And like, so it's okay for you to want to like, transcend the bodies you were born with, but it's not okay for us to do it. And like, we're just doing the same thing you are. And it's like, no, you're not. No, no. you're not. You are, it's, it's very different folks. Yeah. And like, you know, and I feel like that goes to like the ways that some people misunderstand who trans people are and like yeah. our relationship with our bodies and our relationship with like the, the world. But it also just goes to how sometimes people can just co-opt things for their own end. And it's complicated and weird, but I was I was very consciously playing with some of the themes that, that Grant Morrison had kind of laid down, you know, back in New X-Men. I got to comment quickly on Morgan Red, who is delightful in their own way. This very serious, techy, uh, you, you said asexual, Asian-American, uh, trans uh, person, whose mutant power is to turn things to chocolate with a touch. And I read this book as a kid where everything this kid touched turned to chocolate and it scared me <gasps> so bad. But he also has a flying turtle named Hibbert and he's just a complicated, wonderful weirdo. And I'm so glad he's oh there. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm having so much fun with Morgan. And like, I feel like Morgan does spend a lot of time being a little bit of a fish out of water, or a little bit like getting dragged into situations where they're like, what am I doing here? Ah, And like, you know, that's, I feel like over time we're going to see less of that from Morgan, but I actually enjoy Morgan just being the one who's like, this is seriously messed up. And why am I here? And why are any of you here? Why is any of this anything? Because the Marvel universe is a weird and bizarre world. And like Morgan has to improvise with some very strange technology in the next couple issues of new of lethal legion. But yeah, I mean, um, actually the thing about Morgan's chocolate power, I want to say is that, it's not just that Morgan can change things into chocolate with a touch. He can, they can do it at a, at a distance. And like, that's how they turn the, the humans kind of kick virus thing yeah. into chocolate in <laughs> 33. And something that nobody's ever asked me about is, you know, so Sheila has a limit of like six or seven feet of how much she can use her power. As far as I'm concerned, I've never come up with there being a distance limit on Morgan's power. He could theoretically turn something organic to chocolate like on the other side of the world. And I'm waiting for there to be a moment where he does that. And people are just like, people in like a different country are like, why did this thing suddenly turn into chocolate? I don't understand. But I don't know. That's, I don't know if I'll ever find a use for that. But anything organic, he, he can turn into chocolate. And there's a hilarious scene where he does that in Lethal Legion. At least uh, I think it's hilarious. I'm I looking wait. forward to it. Uh, the other the other serious theme I wanted to explore very quickly is uh, so much of trans people's journeys is about learning how to live in their own bodies and to discover their body. You have two trans characters who are fully happy in the bodies that they are in, but you get to explore that same theme with Martha, who has just gotten this new body and is figuring out what this means. And it's it's a really interesting spin to watch the very confident self-assured trans people in their own bodies while Martha is figuring hers out. I, I, it's an interesting parallel for me. I'm excited to see where you take that. Wow, I love this. Yes, that is that is absolutely something that I thought about a lot. And it's something that I'm like really into. And like, I, you know, I used to be afraid 
to put like a metaphorical trans person, like or someone whose whose situation is a metaphor for transness in some way, next to actual trans people, because I thought that it might kind of one might cheapen the other. Like I don't want Martha's like struggle with her body to cheapen like or to make the trans people be like an emblem or whatever of of Martha's situation. But I also don't want the other way around. I don't want it to be just like Martha is just a metaphor for transness because she's not. It's a lot more complicated than that. But her situation does speak to transness in a lot of ways. And I, I feel like it's only been in the last couple of years, last few years, like in the YA books, but also in these comics where I've been like, you know what, you can do that. You can put someone who has a situation that is metaphorically similar to trans people next to actual trans people and just let them bounce off each other and talk about how their situations are different. And I think that that's something that I've been really having a lot of surprising fun with, but I feel like, yeah, I mean, first of all, Sheila and Morgan, I think like a lot of us have insecurities that they don't share with the world. Like I think that there's insecurities and dysphorias and, and anxieties that they, they keep bottled up which maybe are going to come out in ways that are surprising. But also I think that it is like, that's part of why it was so fun to have these moments where like they actually talk to Martha and say things like, yep, having a body is a lot. I would say like one of them is like having a body is great 70% of the time, which I think is a generous estimate. I don't know. (laughs) Depends on the day of the week. Depends on, depends on what I had for lunch, but you know, having a body is mostly great, but it really varies. But I think but I feel like yeah what's Sorry. really great about what you're doing with this story is that it's creating space for empathy and creating space for people to connect in a way that they might like they don't like I can't say that I fully understand a trans experience because I'm not a trans person but I also have a connection to not feeling great in my body all the time so you creating this space is allowing people to to get a connection and an empathetic response to how a trans person might feel and what they might be experiencing in their daily life and opening their eyes to say like this is an opportunity for me to understand someone else and to also understand how it's a universal experience lots so many of these things are able to be understood or at least empathized with that they might not have drawn that connection elsewhere like i just think this book and what you're doing with the writing is so just stunning and I love reading it every week. And I I just want to thank you for doing that, for like creating that space and for really having those conversations and, and putting that stuff out there for people to connect to. It's really beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That's wonderful. And like, yeah, I mean, I hope that that happens. I hope that like, because I do think it's true that like, you know, a lot of the things that trans people deal with are are just a version of what we all deal with, like around our bodies, around gender presentation, around our expectations. It's just, it's a different version of that experience, I think. But also, I mean, I really hope that people just find Escapade and Morgan and the other characters like entertaining and fun and just like become, get into them because they're fun, interesting yeah. characters. And then, oh, they happen to be trans. And like, you know, um, and that's what makes I your writing like... so smart with this, Charlie Jane, is that that these you're not hitting people over the head with this stuff. You're just right. telling a fun, silly, wonderful story about teenage superheroes. But the but these layers are there when you look for them. It's good. Yeah, yeah. I sure hope so. And like, I feel like everything lends differently if you read the Pride issue. Like, if you go back and read the Pride issue, that's where I had the space to like really kind of 
talk about the trans identity stuff in a more explicit way. And I, I hope that people will if you've got Marvel Unlimited or whatever, uh, because I'm really proud of how that turned out. Ted and Roe did such incredible artwork, but I feel like either way, hopefully it's you're going to you're going to feel for these characters. That's, that's my hope. So I wrote three of these little blurbs up. I'm going to read one of them with you here, and then I'll do the other two a little bit later. But this is one of the characters we're introducing on our show today. Let me just read this much, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts on this character and their portrayal in this issue, if you're willing to share. Uh, Once upon a time, there was a little redheaded girl born in Scotland, and her mother, who was a local sex worker, died in childbirth. And the girl was named Rain Sinclair. Rain spelled R-A-H-N-E. And she was raised by a tyrannical... (laughs) Preacher named uh, Reverend Craig Sinclair, who told the girl her whole life that she was a sinner and worthless. And uh, she didn't learn that this man was her father until much later. But then she developed mutant powers. She became a mutant werewolf. And Craig and the locals tried to kill her. But a very complicated woman named Moira McTaggart came along and adopted this young girl and took her to a very complicated place called Muir Island to raise her. And she would go on to become the woman named Wolvesbane. And Wolvesbane, I might argue, is one of the X-Men who has the most traumatic history in that she's had a child murdered and she ate her own father at one point. (laughs) There's a lot of complicated stuff with this character. But let me hear, you're making Wolvesbane fun again, is where I'm landing with this. Let me hear your thoughts on on Wolvesbane and uh, Reverend Craig Sinclair and their connection and their portrayal in this issue. And I'd love to hear uh, your take on this character as well. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. Like, you know, I mentioned that one of my that one of my main ways into Marvel Comics in general was reading Peter David's Incredible Hulk, and he crossed over with X Factor, and I ended up getting all the X Factor issues because of that. And Peter David wrote a lot of X Factor as well, with Rain as one of his characters that he wrote about pretty often. And so that was actually how I first encountered Rain was in those comics uh, where she's a little bit older. And it wasn't until more recently that I read the kind of, I read all of the earlier New Mutants issues with her. She's such a like, I don't know. I mean, she's such an interesting character in part because she has this traumatic upbringing with Reverend Craig. He's basically like your platonic ideal or, you know, not ideal, but whatever the opposite of ideal is of like a really horrible, abusive religious figure who tells people to be ashamed of who they are and is kind of just and is just kind of a monster and like it's kind of a it's kind of amazing to me in a way that Claire Claremont and Bob McCloud were able to get away with portraying you know a religious figure in such a stark light back then um <clears throat> but what's what's fascinating to me about Wolfsbane is that for a lot of those new mutants issues she's still super religious like she she eventually kind of rejects Reverend Craig, but she stays super like bottled up and super like, you know, she holds on to her faith for a really long time. And she's, she's always the character in of that group back in the day. Who's like, who's kind of like, Oh, I don't know. You know, I, I can't drink. I can't do this. You know, I'm like, you know, she's very, she's very kind of proper because she's had this religious upbringing and she's, she she doesn't reject her religious upbringing for a very long time. And she does keep that sweetness. Like, I feel like that's the thing about her. And, you know, it's partly the magic of comics. Like, in general, a rule of thumb of comics is if characters actually felt the level of trauma that they nor would in real life after the stuff that they went through, 
pretty much all of these characters across the board would just be would would be in horrible horrible shape like emotionally and psychologically and probably physically um and that's just that's just a thing like you know you put these characters get put through the ringer like over and over and over again and then they're basically fine again and maybe there's maybe there's a little bit of like kind of hint at like inner turmoil or torment but you know comics are kind of part of the convention of superhero comics is that people are are going to be basically fine but you know she she's i feel like she has this resilience like i feel like she has this amazing resilience she has this amazing ability to kind of keep staying positive and keep believing and even now when her religious faith doesn't seem to be as big a part of her character she still has faith she has faith in her the people around her she has faith in the dream of like a mutant nation and of like mutant prosperity and you know i feel like that's part of what's so lovely about her is that she she never stops believing wolf's bane to me is a character of complicated contradictions uh, she's named after a poisonous plant she turns into a wolf and she has this very savage side and this very sweet side and a lot of her i mean she's been an adolescent for 40 years in the comic books so a lot of her story seems to be i need you to love me because i hate myself but if i think you hate me then i will turn into a wolf and fucking kill you which is kind of a lot of her a lot of her complications so it's really fun to see her being fun again in uh, in your uh, take on her and i know vita did some of the groundwork there uh, as well but uh, she's so complicated and prickly a lot of the time uh she so really is Justin and Alicia, are you guys Wolfsbane fans? <clears throat> okay, I'll say this. No, not until your New Mutants. No lie. <laughs> I was like, oh, Wolfsbane, why are you crying all the time? Like, what? And I, so just so you know, my background on X-Men comics is like, I started with the Krakoan era when we started our podcast. I hadn't read a comic at all. And I was introduced through the podcast to X-Men comics. And so I really only had a lot of Krakoa as my background for Rain at all. And, you know, here and there other things, but I wanted her to have like her own voice and her own personality and to like move forward and do something. And then when I started reading when your run started, I really was like, oh, look at her go. She's finding a way for herself. She's making connections with Morgan. She's becoming a teacher and a leader. And I started actually enjoying her story more because I felt like she was always sort of in this situation where she she was never fully sure of herself and yeah. she she was always like down on herself. And so that's not really anything I can fault her for. But I just wanted her to take another step. I wanted her. I wanted to see her in like a strong role. And I feel like your run is doing that for her. And I, I really appreciate and and I'm starting to enjoy her as a character where before I didn't. If I'm <laughs> going to be completely honest, I, I did. Oh, my God. Well, thank you. But also I'm sad that, you know, I mean. I've always loved her, but I totally, I appreciate that I've helped you to see another side of her. That makes me really yeah. happy. As someone that has a much more extensive X-Men <laughs> engagement history, uh, I love Wolfsbane in uh, the X-Factor run. I just love the complexity. the, And I think that that's what I find interesting about her character arc from the original New Mutants into the X-Factor, the all-new X-Factor run is the struggling with the animalistic side and 
just the shame that she feels about who she is and how that is so complicated and tied to her upbringing and what Reverend Craig did to her and made her feel about herself and just how she then lashes out at other people and especially Ilyana, who's been through a lot of trauma herself and just their relationship was always something that really stuck out to me. I I like the character and especially especially in the Krakoan era, even in the New Mutants movie, I thought that was mm. really well handled in the the complexity of having this traumatic experience, but also needing to be this teenager figuring out who she was. Uh, Charlie Jane, let me ask you two more questions, and then I know you need to run. Uh, let me I mean, hear, I could I could hang for a little longer. Uh, let me hear your I, thoughts on. We're going to introduce and review a cable minus one in just a few minutes. Uh, what were your thoughts on reading this issue from '97, which? Tells us a far future. I know you are a world builder that like theorizes whole whole science fiction futures. Uh, reading this character who comes from the far future and lands in the past. Uh, what were your thoughts on this story? Anything you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, I, I barely remembered that they did these negative one issues. I remember they did one for the Hulk, I guess, which is what I'd read back then. But, um, you know, I mean, it's so it's such a weird comic because you know, it's it's kind of a prequel. It's kind of like just kind of shoehorning extra continuity in before a story that's before a bunch of story that's already been told, and it's you know it's got that weird kind of framing device where Stan Lee is is giving a, a speech, which is super <laughs> weird. And actually, now I remember where I saw these negative one issues before. There was the one where they tried to retcon that Peter Parker's parents had been had been spies or whatever, which yeah, yeah. I don't know if that ever actually stuck or if that's now been like quietly forgotten. But I was like, I just like, whatever. I don't really care about Peter Parker's parents. His parents were Aunt May <laughs> and Uncle Ben, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. But yeah, I mean, this it's it's a very, like the the format of like, there's only like 20-ish pages and like the format of like a big chunk of that being taken up with Stan Lee giving like a weird speech is is very strange. Um, I read this issue a couple times and the first time I was just kind of reading for content and I was like, okay, this is pretty interesting. It's nice to see like Rain being really young and kind of cute and innocent and like being sheltered by Moira McTaggart who, you know, this was back when Moira was a lot less complicated than she is now, I guess, <laughs> like, you know, comparatively. Um, and there's just like that one hint of the darkness where like Cable is like, I, I know you have a son and I won't tell anybody, um, which is like a, th a whole can of worms. But uh, <laughs> the second time I read it, I was really just like fixated by the art, which you know, holy cow, I had not, I'd seen some of comics by Jose Ladron before, but I hadn't fully appreciated what a phenomenal artist he is and how much he's just doing a straight Jack Kirby homage here. Mm -hmm. And like, basically every page is like this just beautiful kind of re recreation of Kirby's style, but with all these like weird flourishes. And the artwork is really like, I love James Robinson. Like I was a big fan of James Robinson from when he, I, I, I know this is DC and it's probably like a terrible thing to mention, but I was a big fan of oh, James Robinson when okay. he was mentioned, when he was writing Starman back in the day and a few other things he wrote back in the nineties. And like, you know, I love his writing here, but I feel like Ladron's artwork is really like, it's really what makes this work, this comic shine. Like every page, there's just like, holy cow. Like some of these, some of the, 
spreads of like the future that cable comes from and like mirror island and like the laboratory like mm -hmm. it's just such like you just want to stare for like for like an hour at some of these images because they're just so gorgeous it's really there's just like it's really, yeah. really beautiful uh, I know you have another recording after this, so we'll let you go. Let me finish with uh, one final... I can hang for another 15, 20 minutes. It's fine. Oh, oh goodness. We'll keep you if you'll stay. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll stay. I, I didn't realize we were going to be talking about Escapade for so long, and I can go... Yeah, I can go another 20 minutes. It's fine. Okay, it's up to you. If you need to go get dinner, it's, it's completely okay. totally fine. Totally fine. It's all okay, good. so I'm going to take a minute to introduce Cable to this show. Now, we've been starting with the, the 60s books, and we've been slowly working our way through, but we're introducing the flashback characters one at a time. So this is going to take just a second to introduce, because Cable's really complicated, and this is the simplest way I could do it. Once upon a time, Scott Summers loved Jean Grey, who became the Phoenix Force and died. Once upon another time, an ancient evil named Apocalypse lived for thousands of years, and he empowered a mad scientist to become Mr. Sinister. And Mr. Sinister grew obsessed with the genetic potential of the offspring of Scott and Jean, but Jean was dead, so Sinister created a clone of Jean and named her Madeline Pryor. And once upon a time, Scott married Madeline, and she had a baby, and they named him Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, and even as an infant, he was impossibly powerful as a telekinetic. And once upon a time, a tortured girl from another future named Rachel came back to the present, and it turned out she was the genetic daughter of that timeline, Scott and Jean. But then she ended up 2,000 years in a future that had been horribly conquered by that timeline's apocalypse. And she started a religious cult called the Ascani, and they prophesied of a child who would one day save them. And once upon a time, Jean Grey came back to life, and Madeline Pryor became the Goblin Queen, and Cyclops and Jean Grey were raising baby Nathan on a ship that had once belonged to Apocalypse. But then Apocalypse kidnapped Nathan and infected him with a techno-organic virus that was going to kill the baby. So a member of the Ascani from 2000 years in the future came back and took the baby forward in time. And they named him Dayspring and he was cloned and his evil clone was Strife and he was the heir to Apocalypse. And once upon a time, Scott got married to Jean, but then they were taken to the far future where they lived in different bodies and they got to raise baby Nathan for over 10 years and then wound up back in the present. And once upon another time, Dayspring lived for decades in the future and became the hardened warrior and the freedom fighter named Cable. And a teenage Cable came back to the present and landed on Krakoa and was there. But then way later, but also way earlier, there's an old man Cable who came back and also Strife was here and they formed a bunch of super teams and became inherent and integral parts of the X-Men before they ever learned that they were the children and clone of Cyclops and Madeline Pryor in the first place. So the story we're reading today is far after Cable is first introduced, but before the X-Men were ever formed when he first landed in the present, the end. Let me hear your thoughts. <laughs> wow, I just want you to say all that like five more times. Just like, that was that was insane. Like, this is why, this is why the X-Men are so confusing. Like, yeah. I just, I, like, that's a lot. That's a really a lot. It's, it's like the Summers family, holy cow. Like, I don't understand the Summers family at all. They're just, I, it's bizarro. I could have brought Madam Sanctity into it. We're not going to talk about her today. <laughs> In the very first episode of my show, we're like, this is real simple, but it gets real complicated if you hang out for long enough. Uh, Justin and Alicia, any thoughts on Cable? I mean, that was really impressive what you just did. I'll say that, first of all. Yeah. And I just like think Cable is so interesting because he knows so much, but he doesn't. He doesn't always want to share with the class what he knows or he'll share bits and pieces and 
you know, it's got to be difficult to like come back and see your parents, but then are they really your parents and you don't know, but you also have a daughter who's sort of like your friend and then also not. And then you see the baby version of yourself who's going to just kill you. And it's like a lot. That's complicated. <laughs> it's a complicated yeah. psyche to deal with. People is it a, really is. People is a Leifeld character from the late 80s who is kind of part Rambo, but also part Terminator, but also mm. part Jesus Christ. <laughs> He's yeah, a, it's man. <laughs> He's a big, broad, thick guy with a metal arm and like giant guns that are bigger than my torso and a glowing eye. And this was like my era of collecting comics. I loved this character. And for me, when I was young, his sense of responsibility, he has to keep everything so carefully in check or the techno or techno organic virus will overwhelm him, which is kind of a parallel for my queerness at the time. Like I had to keep everything so tightly contained or it would overwhelm me. And uh, I've, I've shared that on the show before, but this character is actually one that means uh, a lot to me. Uh, are you guys big cable fans? I am. Yeah. Sorry. So I, you, you go, you go, Justin. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I grew up loving cable, just how badass and awesome that he is. But also the more that you learn about him or the more that he sticks around, the more complicated he gets yeah. because when he first showed up was not established that that was the baby. No, no, just kind of layers and layers. No, we're going to add even more. Oh yeah. He's got another version of himself that, it's just, it gets more and more difficult to juggle all of his bits and pieces and how they intertwine and intersect. And and I love that because I was immediately on board. Like I have Cable issue one, like his first run and just have so much of that run because of how much I loved this big gruff leader guy that had, he had all the leadership skills. He wanted to bring all these wayward children under his wing and make them into army soldiers that fought for a better tomorrow like there was so much about them that i'd argue there's probably even a little gi joe in there oh yeah oh and yeah little, for sure and a little liam neeson and like maybe a little professor x like he's <laughs> very little yeah. i mean he's also a little bit of the punisher like i feel like he's yes. like i feel like leefeld created a lot of characters i'm just gonna say it where he would take an existing character and kind of just like he Cable, he was like, well, let's take the Punisher, but give him a glowing eye and like give him all this other stuff. You know, Deadpool, let's take Spider-Man, but give him like slightly different mask. And like now he's, you know, now he's got this healing factor and also he's got this whole cancer storyline going on. But um, I, f I mean, I never liked Cable until recently, actually. I got to say, I'm, I'm, an, I'm kind of, you know, I'm not a big Cable fan. When I when Cable first... When I first became aware of Cable, which was not when he was first introduced, but probably sometime in the 90s, he just felt like the epitome of that kind of trend of like 90s. Like, I know he's from the late 80s, but he felt like a very 90s character where he's like extreme and big and like, you know, millions of pouches and like, you know, no feet. And like, I don't know, just very kind of very Rob Liefeld, very Liefeld, Liefeld, I don't know. And Very he has a terrible all. code name. The, the the code name Cable is awful. It's meant like he's a cable from the past to the future. It's a terrible. Oh, uh, is that why he's called Cable? Mm -hmm. I mean, I just I don't even know. Ah. Like the only time that I ever back until recently, the I sort of thought of Cable as being basically good for being like a straight man to like Deadpool's funny man. Like they they those two had a comic together for a while, and it was like Deadpool and Cable, and like 
and they were also were together in the second Deadpool movie, I guess. Yeah. And like, you know, having Deadpool like goofing around and Cable being like, no, we got to be serious. Like that's, you know, dead, Cable's basically the Danny Glover to like, you know, I apologize because Mel Gibson is now like, it, his name means something different than he used to, but the Mel Gibson in like Lethal Weapon or whatever. Like mm. that kind of dynamic. But, you know, I got to say, Cable has grown on me recently. I feel like I've this reading this negative one issue gave me a more of an understanding of him and gave me a greater appreciation of him and how how kind he can be and how um, how important his he his mission is to him and how you know cool he can be as a character also i read uh there was i read some of the kid cable issues where he's a teenager and yeah. that was that was fine but then i also read there was a cable issue that came out like a year or two ago that al ewing wrote which was part of like a larger storyline yeah, yeah. where, and actually that was a great version of Cable because that was Cable who is confident, who believes in his people. He has his team who are people he's all worked with before in X-Force. And he just like, he, he keeps them in line, but also kind of trusts them to do their part. And he's, and there's that wonderful, wonderful moment in the, that whatever that issue was that, that uh, Al Ewing wrote recently where like they're they're planning the mission and cable is like I can tell already that this is work of the work of one of the greatest strategists of all time and then fucking uh rocket raccoon shows up <laughs> and rocket, rocket raccoon is like yeah go ahead and laugh I know I'm a raccoon guy whatever get it out of your system and instead cable is like oh my god this is one of the greatest like military strategists in history and like it's like meeting alexander the great and like all these other people and he's just like it is such an honor to serve with you sir and rocket raccoon is like okay i'll take it fine <laughs> like i just love him like this kind of grim serious guy being like rocket raccoon you are like i i bow before you and it's just the, like, uh, that's a great issue, moment the issue you're referencing is 2021's cable reloaded number one which is a terrible title but it's a good one. <laughs> cable reloaded let's reload that cable that's you know? the name of his movie that's the name of his, his movie that my dad would watch yeah <laughs> uh let oh me God. introduce let me introduce one more character and then uh charlie J, we'll let you go grab some dinner let me hear your thoughts uh, I'm going to keep this one much more simple, and we're focusing this one on the retcon. But before I introduce this, Moira McTaggart is a character that Claremont introduced who became more and more and more complicated over the decades. And then they killed her, but then Hickman brought her back and changed everything in the X-Men franchise. And she's so complicated. And there's a special kind of nerdy joy I get when I get to go back and read her stuff before Hawkspox and try to add in what we know about her to the stuff that was never intended in the first place. So we've talked about her on the show some, but this is her first official introduction on my show. Once upon a time, there was a mutant named Moira McTaggart who lived her entire life, died, and then reset reality and started over in her mother's womb. And she did this many more times, each time seeing a different version, making different choices. It was a choose your own adventure book on acid as she got to relive her life over and over, only remembering uh, each life as it came before. No one else uh, knew her. Then in her 10th life, this world that we're living in, she tried changing things and she told big secrets to Charles Xavier and Magneto. 
and it changed everything for her, but it's everything we've ever known. And it changed everything we've ever known since before the X-Men ever started. And then she loved Charles, but then she left him and she married Joe McTaggart because she needed to give birth to a powerful mutant child named Kevin, who's Proteus that she keeps hidden. And then she built a giant science center on Muir Island off the coast of Scotland and eventually adopted Wolvesbane. And that's all I need to cover today. But she's a very, very complicated character who in the current comics is basically the biggest supervillain. But she's often a beloved, like, ancillary member of the X-Men. Uh, God, the legacy virus. There's so many places we could take this uh, this conversation. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Moira McTaggart and what it's like to read her early stuff, adding in what we know now? I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and say that I feel like the version of her that I read, that I grew up reading or that I read until recently, and the version of her, of her post-Hawks box, feel like two kind of different characters to me. They don't feel like the same character um, in a lot of ways. And I that's fine. Like, reinventing stuff sometimes means taking, like, taking some pretty big liberties. I think that that's completely fine. But I do think that, um, you know, I feel like the Moira McTaggart of yore is kind of, you know, she's a helper. She's a scientist. She's often the, the character who they bring in whenever there's like a medical or scientific issue that they have to figure out, like the legacy virus. Mm -hmm. Like recently, for reasons, I was rereading the X-Men Mutant Massacre series, and I think she's in there helping them to care for the wounded or something. And, you know, she's just, she's kind of like, uh, she's a very kind-hearted good-natured helper and you know and i think that her bond with wolfsbane is really important i think that her her maternal kind of bond with wolfsbane and the fact that she basically saves wolfsbane like she saves wolfsbane's life when she's going to be murdered by the reverend craig and his you know horrible followers but also she saves wolfsbane by like nurturing her and caring for her and showing her kindness and kind of helping her to see that there's that there is joy and positivity and life in the world and you don't just have to live in this sort of dark terrible you know version of reality that the reverend craig wants her to live in i i really cherish that and i guess you could say that like i don't i actually am not clear in my own mind if the version of myra that we're reading about here and in the early new mutants issues if that's one of her previous lives or if that's from this same timeline no, it's, from, it's from this same timeline as I understand it. And one of the interesting things to wrap our brain around is I kind of get the concept that a lot has happened in this timeline that she's never seen before. What if she's never seen the Phoenix Force? What if she's never seen Cable or these time traveling characters? Oh, but it's really okay. tricky to reconcile the idea of mommy Moira with the Moira that wears Banshee as a skin suit. Those two characters don't light up very easily. I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like, like I said, they feel like two different characters to me in a lot of ways. And it feels like you know, Moira, like having Moira turn out to be this sort of linchpin of X-Men continuity who has lived all these previous versions of reality through her like rebirth power, which if you want to talk about like, you know, you're going to say Escapade has a power that's complicated and confusing <laughs> and high concept and also like kind of could be God level if you were using it really at a high level. Yeah. Like Moira's power, like her power is just completely like bonkers. But, um, you know, I feel like if you want to be like having her be like a linchpin of X-Men continuity in a way makes sense to me because she's always been like such a central figure to the X-Men. She's always been around. She's always been there kind of helping out and uh, providing advice and support. And, uh, you know, so this is kind of just that plus 
she now just like knows a bunch of stuff that like from seeing previous iterations. And so it's just that plus a million kind of. I so theorized, that makes sense to me on that level. I theorized on one show, it'd be like in the final season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer that Giles was a vampire the whole time. You know, it's like, it's one of these crazy, Yeah, it's, oh my it's God. It's crazy retcon, it's nuts. Um, uh, Justin, Alicia, do you have thoughts on Moira quickly or what it was like to reinterpret this? I mean, I loved House of X number two when that retcon was introduced that, that really blew my mind because I read House of X one and Powers of 10 one. I was like, okay, wow, this is vast. This is huge. This is doing a whole layers of things that I've not seen in X-Men ever. And then that third issue just peels back the curtain for a whole another 10 lives worth of content and it it is difficult to try and see moira the the geneticist i think she's introduced as a housekeeper initially but then she busts down the door with a machine gun mm. and then you're like oh no no this this woman has a lot of skills that she's not talking about and she's <laughs> developed them over many lives apparently and i think there's ways where they they make sense and there's ways that they don't make sense at all and mm. it's trying to navigate okay which do i pick and choose which do i interrogate a little bit or which do i just like okay that's comics that's that's what happens when you add a wrinkle to 60 years of continuity and you just you just have to find a way to go with it for me first of all chad i love that you were like saying that you tried to apply the Krakoan age to every comic that you read in the past when it comes to Moira, because I do that with all of the comics because that the Krakoan age is my base. Like that's my base. So I'll go back and read a comic and whether it's Moira or not, I'm like, but in Krakoa and Justin is like, Alicia, <laughs> that's not how it started. You, you are not the beginning of X-Men, but I think that what's really interesting about it is seeing how, like, I look at everything she does as, like, a secret plot, right? Like, in this issue in particular, like, you're seeing this this lab that she has, this <laughs> giant machine where she's scanning cable. And then, like, the things we know about her now with, you know, her attempted cures and her wanting to go back to those things. It's like, oh, you're, you're you know, you're testing cable for his mutation, and this isn't going to hurt. You know, I put air quotes up like this isn't going to hurt. Like, did you really think it wasn't going to hurt or were you just going to let it uh, hurt a little? And I like thinking about Moira in this way that she's always like not showing her full deck of cards. Like she's always got a little bit of her hand that she's keeping to herself. And then also just like knowing. So we recently was it the the um, 60th anniversary thing where they were yeah. interviewing Jonathan Hickman? And he said that he didn't intend for her to be a villain. Like he intended for her to have these multiple lives, but her turning into a villain was not part of his original plan. And then you think, so now I try to think of it in both ways. I'm like, okay, huh. one, this is, this is Moira as just, you know, plotting and trying all the things she can do to save the world essentially. Right. But then you also think, oh, oh, but now there's this villainous side of her. So I love watching, you know, what what, it, what was her original? If this is retcon Moira and she's taking in Rain, like what's her intention with Rain going forward? Is it devious? Is she really being kind or yeah. is there something else up her sleeve? So I think that that's a really fun way to look at it because 
you have no idea what whoever is writing Moira and whatever issue they're writing her, like how many issues of Moira have they read previously? What did they retain? What are they pulling from? Like, we don't know, but I love making my own headcanon about what it is she's up to. So we're going to do the issue review in a moment, but Shirley Jen, let me excuse you first. As you're wrapping up here, where can people find you online? And we're going to put this episode out on April 17th. Uh, what would you like to plug as far as what's coming up in uh, New Mutants Lethal Legion or your novels, etc.? Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. This has been just such a wonderful uh, conversation and just a total delight. And y'all, all three of y'all are are terrific and I hope we can hang out in person sometime. Yeah, so um, I'm on a bunch of social media as Charlie Jane Anders. That's my handle on Tumblr. That's my handle on Instagram where I post a lot of silly videos. Um, I'm, and that's also my handle on TikTok where I also post a bunch of silly videos. Um, I have a website at charliejane.com. I have a newsletter at buttondown.email slash charliejane. Um, my, I think by the time you hear this, the second issue of Lethal Legion might be out. I'm not sure, or it's about to come out. And that's where all the shit hits the fan, kind of. That's where, you know, Scout and Escapade pretending to be supervillains and Wolfsbane and Morgan, you know, confronting this giant sewer dragon. That's where those situations kind of really spiral out of control in a lot of ways and where we get to kind of spend a lot of quality time with Count Nefaria, who is just yes. an utter delight as a character. I love him so much. And um, my novel, Promises Stronger Than Darkness, came out April 11th. That's the third book of the Unstoppable trilogy. It's about a group of teenagers who leave Earth and go off to save the galaxy. And they're pretty much there's like it's a very queer cast there's like trans characters there's non-binary and gender fluid characters and it's very similar to what we've been talking about their queerness is not like the point of their characters it's just who they are and there's a lot of very queer positive queer normative moments and the universal translator they're using out there in space makes it so that you always use the correct pronoun for whoever you're talking about at all times there's no misgendering in my universe so that's that's a, a fun thing and uh yeah it's been such a delight thank you so much for having me it has been such a joy and please pass on to uh, esther inglis arkell your assistant who's been communicating with us she has been so wonderful in uh consistent communication uh so charlie jane i am not god but i love fags and figs and new mutants lethal legion and i think your work is incredible so thank you for your time and your talents today this has been wonderful thank you so much you. and i think i believe the, that you're not god i mean well, i don't know we'll see i don't know could could be a retcon okay bye, bye Oh God, she's lovely. That was wonderful. Um, Justin yeah. and Alicia, we're good to hang out for just a little while and review a couple yeah. together, I hope. Uh, today we're yeah. introducing uh, Cable Minus One. Now this is of course for our listeners during flashback month when the assignment was to take what the current writers were doing and set it in pre-X-Men continuity. So we had to, uh, we've seen that in a number of different issues as we've been reviewing these flashback books uh, that that assignment can be tricky to fulfill. Sometimes it's wonderful, sometimes it's just okay. <laughs> this is a pretty good book actually. So this is from July 1997. It's called The Devil's Herald. Uh, the writer on this is James Robinson, who's really famous for doing the Justice Society uh, for DC and Starman. He wrote Cable, Generation X, Captain America, Fantastic Four. He's an English, very prolif prolific author. I hope to interview him one day. Uh, the artist on this is Posey Ledron. We discussed uh, Ledron a little bit on our review of Uncanny X-Men Minus One. Uh, he was also the, uh, the artist there. He drew a number of issues of Cable, uh, like 48 up to 70. He's a Mexican artist. He's wonderful. Uh, Juan Velasco is the inker. Gwyneth Sween is the colorist. Richard Starkings of Comicraft. 
Oh, wait, I'll let Alicia do that. Uh, Richard Starkings, Comicrafts Richard Starkings as well. Excuse Alicia. me, <clears throat> Comicrafts Richard Starkings, please, okay? Put his proper credits, Chad. And uh, Mark Powers is the editor. Uh, this <laughs> issue falls squarely between cable 44 and 45, uh, and it's in the middle of the Operation Zero Tolerance story. Uh, let me open this book up for us a little bit. We've already introduced some of the concepts. Uh, the cover of this book is a uh, cable looking very thick as usual with lots of pouches and big guns. And he's got long hair here, which is great. Uh, he's landing yeah. in the water. Uh, who is this mutant from another time? Is he mankind's last hope or something far more sinister? You decide. Uh, what are your thoughts on this cover before we uh, jump further in? Um, I really like long hair cable. So into that. <laughs> He's like the mix between Old Man Cable and Babel. You know, he's somewhere in between. And especially reading this now in 2023, I don't know what to expect from him. Because yeah. he's, just, he's just got so many potentials of what he could be. It's giving me kind of like Cable as the Swamp Thing vibes. So I'm not <laughs> sure. Like, is he good? Is he bad? Is he in trouble? Decide. What's about to happen? <laughs> Uh, we open this book with uh, the Stanley openings, which are part of all of the uh, Flashback Month issues. We've got Stanley's head on Cable's body, which is frankly just something I can't unsee. It's <laughs> not okay. So uh, it's so weird. He's carrying a giant gun. He's providing witty commentary. He's got his glasses on. One of the eyes is glowing. And then we move into the story that we want. Uh, when we start uh, the, the story part of the book, we see Moira McTaggart and Rain uh, on a boat headed from your island to Scotland. I'm going to read these initial caption boxes that describe Moira. Uh, one day she will be renowned. One day she will be one of the leading voices on genetic abnormality manifest within Homo sapiens mutations that will result in creating the term Homo superior. One day her books will bring her both acclaim and disdain from the scientific community. One day, mutants will flock to her home, your island in northern Scotland, in hope of answers, in hope of peace, in hope of acceptance. One day, Moira McTaggart will have all that, but not today. True, at this time, her genetic findings have won her a Nobel Prize, but there is still so much she needs to learn. The girl by her side is her ward, Rain Sinclair, small, meek, afraid of her own shadow. One day, she will be called Wolvesbane, valiant member of X-Force, but not today. Uh, so it seems they've gotten a, a call from the mainland by a man named Angus McWhorter, who is a Chris Claremont character. Uh, this is a guy that gets taken over by Proteus and Eaton back in Claremont's run. If you go back, uh, this is a deep pull. Uh, when they get to the mainland, Angus informs them that there's a crazy guy that's landed in uh, in like the town square in, in a small village in Scotland, basically. And uh, the locals are not reacting well. Reverend Craig and his people are just fucking pissed. And we... Get to Reverend Craig. He's uh, there's this gorgeous image of him holding up a Bible with a cross, Bad surrounded by flame. It's burning. Uh, this idea of just religion boring out your soul. Uh, and I'm gonna try. I know I sound more Irish than Scottish. My husband was making fun of me for practicing this earlier, but I'm gonna try this. He goes, "I tell ye, tis a boating on hell of earth." Excuse me, geez, I've already messed up. I tell ye, tis a boating of hell on earth. A time when all sinners will go to the fires of damnation to dance hell's merry jig. And uh, they run up and he is just going crazy. Look at this. Look at the smoke off in his body, off of the fires of Hades. Look at his fiery glowing eye. It is the evil eye. I tell you, each and every one of you, this thing before you can only be one thing. The devil's herald. And uh, Cable's speaking like Hubert. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> He's like the future of Scotty language. He doesn't know how like, to speak English. And, it looks uh, like we're Cohen. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> Do you guys ever play Cubert? 
no yeah yeah, yeah. yeah like wah, wah, wah. he's got like little little expletives that come out of his mouth and uh reverend craig as we recall has tried to kill wolfsbane previously and moira saved her and he's just pissed that he's that she's there uh, I should have known you'd be here, uh, he says to Moira. What, what are you doing here? There's this devil man here, and here you are. And uh, everybody's just freaking out. And I kind of get it. Cable's dressed in these crazy clothes. He's got a metal arm. But Cable's able to use his powers to uh, to stop them uh, from uh, freaking out. Uh, let me hear you guys' thoughts on this introduction to the book. By the way, Cable is a, is a very powerful telekinetic, but he does have some telepathic abilities, which is why he's able to alter their thoughts. It's so it's so insane just how calmly they're like, yeah, this is Moira. This is rain. They're going on this trip. Oh, there's something crazy happening in the town square. And Reverend Craig is just going off. And it if I didn't know, I would think, wow, this is kind of out of character. But no, this is always how we see Reverend Craig. Everyone's a devil. Everyone is causing hell on earth. And anything out of the ordinary is going to be screamed and hit with a Bible. Mm. And I just, the the nonsense of it all is so enthralling. It's so hilarious. And I love how Moira just doesn't care. Yes. She just comes in and she's like, Craig, you're on your shit again. Like, I'm here. Cool to out, save Craig. The day. Yeah, I'm taking all the devils with me to my secret island and you're not invited. Yeah, that's the thing for me is like, Moira's so casual about the whole thing. Like this, this is very clearly a regular occurrence. This like mob, the flaming Bible, the, the like angry crowd, the, the preaching in the streets. And Moira's just like, all right, just take a sec. Just can you just chill for one second? Let me just take this guy. Everything's going to be fine. It is like very Monty Python. I say we beat him. See if the demon bleeds. I say we drown him. <laughs> it was a test for old witches. I bet it works as good on a devil's spawn. Uh, yeah. like before Cable's able to calm them down, this crowd is not doing well with this. <laughs> nope. Uh, as we as we advance a little bit, uh, Cable uh, kind of gets everyone to go away. Like, what were we doing here in the first place? And suddenly Reverend Craig's nice. Oh, Moira McTaggart, it's a grand day when I have a chance upon to see you and we reign in the square. Uh, like, they're like, oh, what the what the hell? Uh, Moira what? says, my, my cousin's visiting. And oh, your cousin. And, and Cable's making them see kind of an image. Uh, and Reverend Craig invites them to church and kind of walks away gently. And uh, Moira is going to take them back to Muir Island now. Now, Muir Island is one of the most beloved X-Men locations, pre-Kakroa at least. I don't know what's happening with Muir Island in the modern books. Uh, but this is like the base for Excalibur for a long time. Uh, we've got the Muir Island X-Men saga. This is a, an, an infamous place uh, in X-Men continuity. Uh, do you guys have uh, fond memories of Muir Island? I do. I love the the Muir Island saga, uh, Claremont, kind of towards the end of his run. I just I love this visual design of it here. I think this mm. is one of the few times that I've seen it look like this, where it's built into the the stone of the island, and to have these little compartments, it just looks so much more complex than I previously remember it. But I just I love it to be this secret base of operation for her science. Yeah, I think that for me, it's cool that there's always, it's always a secret place, but it's always integral to the story. Like it's always a, a life needs to be saved. A problem needs to be solved. Like we're going to go to this place and it's all going to be okay. Um, Alicia, will you take over uh, with Cable's flash forwards, flash back? God, time travel is complicated. Yes, yes. <laughs> 
Okay, so the, the pure sight of Muir Island just like sends Cable into this whirlwind where he's remembering this epic battle. And we are really not 100% sure what's happening in this battle. We've got, there's a whole crew of fighters happening. And then there's these giant bones, which I am like, is there some sort of giant monster that you have slain? Whose spinal cord and ribs are those? Like, what's happening and there's fire and there's fighting and then there's a bounty hunter and this bounty hunter named i'm going to say canaanite i'm not sure if that's actually how you pronounce yeah, it cable cable's part of there's the canaanites in the future oh, i see okay that's Excellent. a big part of cable lore but we don't need to go there today okay well he wants Cable, but he's not calling him Cable. He's calling him Dayspring. And he's like, he's ready to get him. And he's like already plotting how he's going to spend his bounty money. And Cable's like, not today. Sorry. It's not going to happen. And there's a fiery explosion. We get a big boom. And everyone's like, oh, my God, no, Dayspring, you're dead. And he's like, no, I'm here. Don't worry. I'm not burned to death. Not yet, he says very strongly. And we cut back to what is, you know, in a, in tying it back to Stanley's little preface at the beginning of this book, our present. Um, and Cable just has one solid tear coming down his one regular eye or his his, his, real, his eye. real eye, as uh, Moira calls out. And, you know, he because he's remembering this this battle and the lives lost and. Rain wants to do something to help him. She asks Moira, like, are we going to do something for him? Are we going to help him? And Moira's like, we are not doing anything, Rain. You have homework to do. And so go do your homework. I'm going to run some tests. And you think, oh, I'm going to run some tests. Okay. And then all of a sudden, look at this giant lab, this gigundous machine that Moira, you know, just happens to have lying around so she can test for your mutant ability. And I like that she's she's like asking him, you know, I'll test you for superhuman potential. And if you have any, like Moira, what do you mean if, if? You just witnessed this man like change everybody's minds. You know he has mutant potential. Metal Super- arm, glowing like, eye, like what? But she's, you know, she's unsure. So she's I gonna, feel like this is the same lab where she studies Jean Grey with the Phoenix yeah. Force too. Oh, ah, yeah. yes. Well, I like the little the little pod, the little pea pod that he's like rested in within this giant machine. You know, it kind of looks like a like a sled or a boat, something. <laughs> he looks somewhat cozy. Or, or a bean. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. and then he's got all these things all over his face. He doesn't look very excited about these tests, but she says, you know, don't worry. It'll only hurt a little. It's only going to hurt a little. So if, if you go to the bottom of this page, I, I'm going to I'm going to point this out very quickly. There's yeah. a panel of Moira standing in front of a group of books. <gasps> and if you zoom in on the books, one of them is named for Charles Darwin. And one of them has the name Nathaniel Essex on the spine. And it's super tiny. You have to like look way close, but that's a cute little nugget there. You're like, I love that. I also, there's a dinosaur figurine on the shelf. (laughs) Mm, Moira. And a Japanese dictionary. And she has some Japanese on her lab 
console too. Oh, interesting. So there's, there's hints of the complexities of this character. Again, unintended, but it's interesting. Right. Yeah. There's a lot more to Moira than we know. And um, her tests are not really going so smoothly <laughs> because even though this process is supposed to be painless, something is going completely wrong. And what we know is Cable's techno-organic virus is, is spiraling out of control. It's taking over his body. It's messing with her machine. He looks and, like he got hit by a defibrillator. Yeah. <laughs> Just he, shock. He's like, she's like, oh my gosh, something's not right. And she tries to help him off, but he weighs too much and she, she doesn't know what's happening. He's passed out. And uh, then, then kaboom. Uh, Justin, take us from there to the end. What happens next? Yeah, from that kaboom, instant terror, instant fear. What will happen to Moira? Will she die? No. Table steps in, saves the day, maybe gets the girl. There's some weird tension later on. We'll get to it. So there's all these metal parts clanging down. He's slamming the ground. They embrace. They hold each other. Steamy eye contact as energy passes between the two of them. And he now can speak English. I'm sorry. You can speak English just like that. <laughs> then you can tell me why, now why you're here, where you're from. I'm from the future, two millennia to be more exact, and I have a secret mission I can't tell you anything about. Classic time travel shenanigans, classic cable. I'm here, I'm badass, I'm I'm super strong, and I've got all sorts of mystery. There's a lot of back and forth between the two of them in this wreckage. And I love that Moira questions none of this. She's like, No, oh, no, this is cool. Par for the course. I, I mean, you see. Especially to read this issue and how chill she is with everything yes, in so context chill. to her being a multi-lives having two thousand year old woman. <laughs> right, right, right. No, I I I science. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I know what that means. Sure. And cable drops some some real big knowledge on him, on, on Moira. I'm here for Charles Xavier. Get me Xavier. And she is very clinical about her relationship with Xavier is like, oh, yes, we have mutant interests and more. <laughs> We've had some. There was a time. You know, that, but we don't have to talk about that right now. Let's just let's just sit here amongst this wreckage. And as a very quick recap, we won't go there. But Moira revealed all the all the her life stuff to Charles. And they were together as a couple for a long time. And then he right. went off to war and she dear johned him and married Joe and then had the baby. And they haven't seen each other in years at this point. But that's all. Again, we'll go over that another time. An awkward reunion. Right. <laughs> introduces Cable to Charles Xavier. Oh, hey, by the way. What's up, Charles? Well, well, I mean, she's got a she's a science lady. She's got a good question. If you need Charles Xavier, why did you come to me? Why are you here? And we are introduced to the complexities of time travel logistics. It's forbidden in Cable's timeline currently. And he's gotten to this point because it's the closest that he could get. And we, we do interrogate a little bit to this apology that Cable gives mm. to Moira because he's seen in her mind, gazed upon her thoughts, and knows about her son. What? That's a story for a different time, dear reader. We're not going to get there right now. That's just, uh, he could have you know, delved deeper as far as her secrets go. <laughs> You're right, right. <laughs> There's a lot more you could have scanned, Cable. Maybe take another look. <laughs> 
I don't know. It's these panels here where they're like holding each other amongst the wreckage. And she's like, yeah, now I'll keep your secrets. And they like his hands on her shoulder. He's kind of leaning in. Like they make out in this, right? Like they, this is totally. In the panel, like the page before, he has his fingers in her mouth. Those I know. Are his hands, right? Like what are you doing, Cable? No, th those are hers. Those are hers? Yeah, th that's her glove. Okay. That's a weird move. It's like, <laughs> hey, girl. Don't do it to hey, me. Hey. I was like, wait, did that happen? No, she's biting her own fingers because gross. <laughs> biting her own fingers. I apologize. So sorry. But just Incorrect. The, just the way that they're sitting, like, like these eyes. These eyes right here. Those Come on, Moira. Sexy eyes. Those are fuck me eyes, and you know it. Ooh, there's a sexy old man in my room. <laughs> and we, the reader, know nothing about it because we've panned out too far before the meeting with Charles Xavier. As we go to an epilogue, Apocalypse Rises. Who woke me up early from my nap? Is basically the fee fi fo fum of N Sabanur as Who he disturbs is. my slumber. <laughs> and, and let I me let me read this part actually. So the sure. interesting thing in 1997 continuity, Cable's mission as we understood it was to stop the rise of Apocalypse because in the future Apocalypse has conquered his world. So the implication here is that Cable coming to the past is what actually woke Apocalypse up, which is an interesting thing. But let me read this page really quickly. Uh, epilogue, Switzerland and he awakens. Something has caused this. Apocalypse ponders what it might be as he moves his limbs and feels the rich ooze that fills his veins pulse anew within him. He had not intended to rise from sleep for another century or perhaps longer. He mulls the idea that he might go straight back to the healing state, reinvigorate his mutant physiology for the time yet to come. But like a Monday morning worker, that thought soon passes. An energy abnormality has activated the hibernation device. Somewhere in the world, a sudden awesome flare of energy has caused a ripple on the electromagnetic field covering the planet. Apocalypse's alien machines had detected this. Thawing had commenced. The cause of this energy must be investigated. This world, this era in time must be examined too, for perhaps there are creatures now upon it with which he might have sport. Born at the dawn of civilization, each new epic he, he discovers is a new endeavor. Each time his aim to improve civilization through the conflict that only the fittest of the species will survive faces new challenges. Sport indeed. And far away in the North Sea on Muir Island, where everything is calm and smells of salt water and sweet heather, Nathan Day Spring Summers will never know that it was his own, that it was his coming that Apocalypse's machines detected. It was he who caused them to revive their master in the 20th century. So in a way, the Reverend Craig was right, for Cable is indeed the Devil's Herald brilliant writing it's so good and i'm not even taking time to introduce apocalypse we've already introduced three big characters i can't do this one too but he's huge he's huge in the x-men franchise yeah yes uh and then it closes with stan lee giving some more commentary on cable's guns that's where we lens <laughs> i love seeding this complexity into his life story just that he is on a mission to stop apocalypse but is the cause of apocalypse's rise here and the, the metaphor of, and just like Monday morning workers, like Apocalypse is one of us, y'all. He wanted to hit snooze. Yeah. He wanted to go back to bed, but he's like, no, rise and grind. Survival of the fittest. It's time to get that donut. It's time to get that donut. I fucking love Apocalypse. He's amazing. We'll get to yeah. him on another yeah. show soon. Uh, Ledron's pencils in this issue are beautiful. And James Robinson tells a pretty solid story. This is a good read. It stands out. I really actually enjoyed this one. 
Uh, I know we're a little over time. Uh, you guys are exhausted from painting all day. But it's so do, you have, good. Uh, do you have I'm final thoughts fun. on uh, on this issue? Uh, well, okay. As someone who doesn't always know what happened in the past, I I appreciated this issue for the insight. And then also, even though at the beginning, I was a little bit like, what are you doing in this comic, Stanley? What's happening here? At the end, the way that he sort of like ties it all together, puts a little bow and he's like, and then this is what you would need to know about what happens with Cable, blah, 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 blah. I was like, okay, this is good. This is a good insight for me. And I also liked, I don't know, I felt a little like Tarzan and Jane energy between Moira and Cable when he first came and that like <laughs> he was this stranger who who like couldn't understand and she needed to like help him grow and help him be able to communicate to like get to the meat of what he needed to do and and then he saves her and you know and and the idea that she's like you saved my life like I'm indebted to you of course I'll bring you to Charles Xavier put your hand in my mouth <laughs> <laughs> I I thought it was a really fun read and um good insight into the characters it was like you know one of those issues where you just turn the page, turn the page, turn the page, what's happening next. And I appreciate those. Um, yeah, I thought it was a good the, time. The constant reinterpretation of the early X-Men stuff, which is one of the reasons we're doing these flashback issues because we're focusing on the early continuity still, but we start to see how it gets more and more layered over time. It's so fascinating to watch it build and build and build as the yeah. this universe kind of in, uh, constructs itself brick by brick. Uh, Justin, do you have any final thoughts? This was fun. This I had not read this issue before. For, for this conversation and I know these characters you know I know Muir Island I know Reverend Craig and just all that but to see them tied together like this and to really spring into Apocalypse's story and the deeper connection to Cable I thought that that was a lot of really good juicy continuity bits mm -hmm. and just I, I love the art I love the art especially on the Apocalypse page and all the intricate nature of his base in Switzerland, his, his lair as he's awaking. Uh, I just, any any time that you can uncover some new stuff and you can slip some more details into uh, a way back past moment, I'm here for it. Mm. Uh, this has been an absolute delight. I have more thoughts, but I'll save them for another time because we're over time. But let me just say out loud to listeners, uh, interviewing Charlie Jane was just a huge honor for me. I think she is just an incredible person. Go back and read what she's doing on New Mutants, having heard this conversation, and then watch for these nuances. It's really powerful storytelling. And the yeah. diverse writers that we're getting these days, uh, these smart, incredible people that are working on these books, uh, it's it's really powerful. Uh, Justin and Alicia, as always, I just adore the both of you. I love hanging out. I think you're wonderful. Uh, and I, I, uh, I love every time you come on the show. Uh, as we're wrapping up, where can people find you guys online? And what would you like to plug? We're putting this out on April 17th. Gray Malkin Lane is Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter. Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. We are putting out regular content. One of the best ways you can support, support the show is by joining the show's Patreon channel. It's $3 a month. We're putting four character episodes out a month. And I'm getting, I feel like I'm getting a college thesis in X-Men as I put these episodes out. Uh, I'm all over the place with them. And it's a lot of fun. The next Patreon episode coming out right after we release this is on the character Lifeguard uh, from the Extreme X-Men era with uh, with my friend Jamie Faye. 
And uh, the two episodes coming out on the main channel after this, the next one is the trial of Sergei Kravenov, uh, Craven the Hunter. Alicia's coming back with me on that one. And God, is he a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> and uh, right after that, this is my first time publicly announcing this. We uh, are doing a fashion photo review with three professional drag queens of the 1960s X-Men costumes. Uh, so oh. Devinda Martini, Tay Bobo, and Dax Exclamation Point are all coming on the show. And it's gonna be so fucking funny. And I'm so excited. Oh and then we're uh, and then we're reviewing the Alan Davis uh, Savage Hulk series, which is set right after the 60s continuity. So uh, be there for that. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, over to you guys. Where can people find you and what do you want to plug? Oh my God. First of all, I can't wait for that that episode with the drag queens let's I've been go excited for months <laughs> that's incredible um and thank you so much for including us in this conversation chat it's really it was really a powerful wonderful conversation and we love being here and being on your show so yeah. thank you so much for involving us in this um Okay, where can you find us? Well, we're the ex-wife podcast. You can find us all over the internet at the ex-wife podcast. That's T-H-E-X-W-I-F-E as in X-Men, not former wife. And Justin, what are we? April. April. We'll be out of Sins of Sinister, finally. You no, never be, finally. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I don't know how you all are feeling about it, but I am here for it. I actually could live a thousand years in the Sins of Sinister life. But we'll be on the other side and heading towards the fall of X, Ooh, especially yeah. the Hellfire Gala that kicks it off. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, stay tuned. We have a lot of great stuff. X-Men The Hidden Years starts on my show in uh, two more weeks. Uh, so uh, be prepared. We have a, a long, wild ride ahead uh, through the rest of this year. Uh, Justin and Alicia, thank you. Charlie Jane Anders, thank you. Uh, we will see you all back here next time on Great Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.